you're listening to Journaling with PT. I am your host, artist PT Russell. This is a podcast that highlights creative voices and emerging artists from all over the world. Today we visit James Bond in the Bahamas with my co-host, Mr. Steve J. Rubin, who is a film historian, a filmmaker, host of Saturday Night at the Movies, and a James Bond documentarian. Please enjoy this special episode. Take care. Hello, everyone. My co-host today is a distinguished film historian, the host of Saturday Night at the Movies podcast, and a James Bond documentarian. Welcome, Mr. Steve J. Rubin to the podcast. Hello, Steve. Hi, PT. How are you? I'm good. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to assist me in my quest to revisit James Bond and his fortuitous relationship with the Bahamas. And also to help me pay homage to film producer and screenwriter, Mr. Kevin McClory. Thank you so much for taking the time, honestly. It's, it's, a, it's an early uh, birthday gift, Christmas gift. <laughs> it's awesome. Happy to be here. Right. And, and how, how did you enjoy your trips to the Bahamas? It was a bit of an adventure. I had just gone to work. Uh, let's see. I was hired by United Artists in 1978 to be the advanced publicist on a movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a remake. And your, your listeners may remember Donald, uh, Donald Sutherland, Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went around to science fiction conventions all over the United States and promoted that movie. And I was in New York uh, when I got the uh, call from Kevin McClory that I should come to the Bahamas, where I would be interviewing him for my book, my first book on the James Bond films, which was called The, uh, the James Bond Films, A Behind the Scenes History, which was the first book ever written which recorded the history of the at least the first 10 Bond movies. Mm-hmm. So uh, I left for the Bahamas. I'd never been to the Caribbean before, so it was a trip for me that was I looked forward to. And I arrived in Nassau at night, went to my hotel. And I remember coming from, I think this was November, December in New York, so it was freezing cold. And I remember, remember how delightful <laughs> it was that I arrived in Nassau and I had to take my jacket off because it was nice and warm, and yes. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> and, uh, did you try any Bahamian cuisine while you were uh, Well, I, I, my memory of that, now we're talking, let's see, 78, so we're talking 30, 40. <laughs> Sometime. <laughs> 46 years ago, so I don't remember. I do remember, this is very funny, <laughs> because I spent a lot of time with Kevin. I was over at his house, and mm-hmm. I remember... And this is just me being the kind of naive 
person from LA, he had the tiniest bananas in the world. I mean, they were like, <laughs> they were like miniature bananas. And I found that amusing because I had grown up eating full size bananas. So there, there's a there's a culinary treat for your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we, we do have the, the bananas are a little different. <laughs> They're sweet, They're usually very sweet uh, sugar bananas. <laughs> yes, and that was a delightful thing. I, I ate there. I interviewed him at length. Um, <clears throat> just spent some really good time with Kevin and his brother. And I'm trying to remember his brother's first name. You probably know that. <sighs> Well, I definitely know who knows, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Well, I remember oh my since, since I was a World War II aviation buff, I really enjoyed uh, talking about planes and, and the war. I remember that his brother, De his brother's name was Desmond. And Desmond. Desmond was a fighter pilot in World War II. He flew Bristol Bow Fighters, which was a very speedy British plane. And we talked about bow fighters for a while, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, his, as you recall, yeah. his property was quite large. Uh, it was, it, you know, I'm used to <laughs> houses with neighbors. He didn't have any neighbors. At least he didn't have any neighbors then. It was just all this jungle. And then, mm -hmm. as I think I told you in our pre-interview, I was yeah. walking down his main driveway, and there to my left was the A-bomb scooter uh, or chariot or however you'd like to describe it from Thunderball, the actual yeah. uh, the thing that carried the, um, the stolen A-bombs. And it was sitting there kind of in the tall grass collecting, you know, a rust. Oh. Oh. <laughs> well, the, the salt air, right? The salt air, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm hoping that it ended up in some kind of museum facility mm -hmm. because it's such an art, you know, it's kind of an iconic, prop from yes. uh i should say iconic working prop from thunderball yeah yeah that was it was like a playground going to his 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 house i could remember uh a number of occasions going there well the pool with kids you know the, we have a one track mind to have lots of fun and jump in the pool and i was just like that was my first experience with the jacuzzi i'd never been in jacuzzi before so to go from the pool with the cooler water and then jumping back and forth and that's what i did as a child so there was those were some of my memories and how was he um meeting him and having that experience and you know having the opportunity to interview him and to speak with him what was your impression your first impression of him he was a fascinating gentleman. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, the whole experience of producing Thunderball, because a lot of people don't realize that even though Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman are the typical producers for the Bond series, mm -hmm. uh, this was a, a little bit of an outlier because Kevin McClory had the rights to Thunderball. They weren't owned by either the studio or by Broccoli and Saltzman. So I was with someone who really had a great story to tell about how he acquired those rights. And then, of course, rather than have a rival Bond movie, Broccoli and Saltzman uh, made a deal with him uh, to make the film together. And Kevin got the producer credit on that movie. And I, he also has the credit, I believe, the producer on the remake, which we know as Never Say Never Again. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into a little bit of the history of Thunderball, or is that something you'd prefer not to talk about? 
Yes, I, I would love that. I, I, I wanted to know, well, you, of course, <laughs> you're a James Bond buff, and so are so many of the listeners. I want to know your origins with James Bond, if you mind sharing that right quick. Well, um, <laughs> <it's an interesting, laughs> how did it all start, Steve? It's an interesting story because it starts with my dearly departed father. Uh, my dad used to go on business trips. He was in the steel cable business. He sold steel cable all over the Southwest. And he would go on business trips to Arizona, Nevada, and he loved to read Westerns. And dad, uh, God love him, uh, loved, you know, stories of the, of the vintage West. And I had no interest in reading Westerns. So he would bring home these Western paperbacks and I had no interest in looking at them. However, one day he came home for a business trip and he put a paperback book. I remember it had blue cover. And there was a picture of a naked woman on the cover. She was, of course, covered in gold paint and she was uh, tastefully presented. Uh, but this was a book called Goldfinger. Now, in 1964, when this took place, Bond was not really well known. I mean, he was started at the, the, the series of books that Ian Fleming wrote had started to gain some momentum because Hugh Sidey, a journalist, I believe with Look Magazine, had posted uh, John F. Kennedy's reading list, his top 10 books. And number nine on that reading list was From Russia With Love. So all of a sudden, uh, after the book sales were rather low key, they were presented with a great boon of getting presidential approval. So all of a sudden, the paperback books of the James Bond novels were, uh, were selling, selling like hotcakes. And I vividly remember my junior high school classroom a lot of the guys in the class had the paperbacks on their desks and they were very colorful they were released by signet signet publishers and they all had different color covers with very evocative images and i happened to have goldfinger now i was a rather i was a rather sheltered 12 year old so the concept of reading a rather adult novel in 1964 was very new to me and um mm -hmm. uh goldfinger is a very interesting book uh it made a very interesting movie that christmas Absolutely. when i saw it so the combination of reading the book and then seeing the movie that came out that christmas with a ton of fanfare the first two james bond movies dr no and from russia with love were barely uh promoted i don't remember any type of hoopla mm -hmm. but by 1964 with the president behind it uh, United Artists, I believe, pulled out all the stops and Goldfinger made more money than any other movie is, as quickly as Goldfinger did. I mean, it, it wasn't a, as big a huge success, perhaps, as Gone with the Wind, but um, it was a huge, huge success, kind of equating like what we would get today, maybe with a new Mission Impossible movie or a new wow. Avengers movie. It was that kind of national thing. So uh, between the reading the book and seeing the movie, I was a dyed-in-the-wool Bond fan now. And of course, the next spring, they re-released the two first James Bond movies as a double feature. I caught up, and then I was really into Bond pretty much forever. Um, yeah. Then I realized early in the 70s uh, that no one had really written a book about the making of the series. And I had just written a book called Combat Films, American Realism, 1945 to 1970, which was my first book. 
And I had interviewed filmmakers for about two years about the making of the great war pictures. And the book sold 500 copies. It's pretty good. I said to myself, (laughs) if if I'm going to make a living as a writer, (laughs) I got to find a subject that actually sells copies. And fortunately, my next book, the James Bond films of behind the scenes history, sold 50,000 copies. So I was, uh, I I, I couldn't stop having my day job because after, you know, they don't pay you every day or every week or every month. It comes in maybe once or twice a year. But um, I was on my way to having a successful writing career, although I made my living in the film business first as a publicist and then as a producer writer. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. And Goldfinger happens to be my favorite Bond film, by the way. So that's that's uh that's awesome okay so we gotta we gotta do the typical goldfinger fan dialogue exchange (laughs) i say do you expect me to talk and you say (laughs) no mr vaughn i expect you to die (laughs) 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 that was something oh man of course the other uh, line which is a little off color but i'll say it anyway (laughs) since we're both fans uh, he's yes. on the airplane. He's been knocked out with a tranquilizer dart. And he wakes up and he looks up at a very beautiful woman and, and he says, who are you? And she <laughs> says, my name is Pussy Galore. Oh, and, boy. <laughs> and James Bond says, I must be dreaming. <laughs> I, that flew right over my head uh, at uh, six, seven, eight years old. Well, watching I, it, you, so. I got news for you. It flew over my head at 11. But when the audience <laughs> broke up, I laughed in chorus with them. You know, uh, And of course, if you look at the entire history of the James Bond series, which includes 25 mm-hmm. official films and two unofficial uh, mm-hmm. over 60 years, that line still gets the biggest laugh of the series. This is just, it's just, just great. So you, you can do a dive into, uh, you had mentioned, well, there are many films that were, uh, movies that were filmed in the Bahamas. There were seven Bond films between 1965 and 2006, but we're not going to touch on all of them today. We'll be here all day. So we can start with Thunderball. Well, the story of Thunderball is an interesting one. Um, Ian Fleming's books were not selling that well, and he had trouble getting anybody interested in doing a movie. This is talking about the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, he was introduced to Kevin through a mutual friend. Now, Kevin had read all the books, and it's a a rather insulting comment, but uh, Kevin McClory told Ian Fleming that his books were not cinematic, which, of course, is a lot of hooey. But uh, Ian Fleming took the criticism and McClory followed it up saying, but I know how to create a bigger cinematic story. Now, he had just worked for Mike Todd as an assistant on uh, Around the World in 80 Days. So he had done an international production. He knew how to put a lot of uh, production value on the screen. So he told um, Ian that I think I've got an idea. And he brought in a writer named Jack Whittingham who was an established screenwriter in England. And working with Fleming, they came came together to create a story that originally was called Latitude 78 West. And the story was about an A-bomb hijacking, like the story we have from Thunderball. Um, Although this was early on, so there were various... Uh, there, there were various um, 
drafts of the story. The first drafts, I believe, did not have a specter organization. I think the mafia, the Italian mafia, was part of the, the A-bomb hijacking scheme. And then there were various characters that went through different trans, you know, transitions. Uh, finally, they settled on Spectre uh, as the villain because they didn't want to get, uh, I think it was, um, I'm not sure who said it, but they said they didn't want it to be political. They didn't want it. To, they didn't want right. the mafia. They didn't want the Russians. They didn't want the Chinese. They wanted kind of an apolitical crime organization and Spectre fit the bill. Special mm -hmm. executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge and extortion. Uh, which, of course, we know from the series. So uh, they wrote the script, Latitude 78 West, try to interest an actor to play the lead, because you didn't just hire an actor for the one movie. If you're going to do a James Bond franchise, you've got to have all of the stories, and you have all, you know, again, uh, all an actor for at least seven years. Well, Bond was virtually unknown in the late 50s. Nobody outside Britain knew anything about it. And even Britain, the books weren't selling that well. So McClory, Winningham, um, Fleming fell short. The script lay collecting dust. Nothing was going on with it. And then Ian Fleming did uh, made a kind of tactical blunder. Uh, it's surprising because he should have known better. But he took the materials from Latitude 78 West, and he wrote a novel, which he called Thunderball. Mm -hmm. And the big mistake he made is he did not credit either McClory or Whittingham. The book oh, went out, was a huge success, and what his reward was he was slapped with a huge lawsuit. And that's how Kevin McClory got the rights to Thunderball. This was one of the books that did not sell to Albert, Albert Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in the early 60s when they made the deal. So uh, it was a very trying time for Ian Fleming. It's the, the story goes that it took the life out of him, having to drag himself into court and fight this case. And some, some people think it's part of the reason that he died so young, because Ian Fleming uh, died in 1964 at the age of 56, he was a fairly young man, but you know uh, this didn't help his uh, health. So, so McClory got Thunderball and he had the same problem he had back in the late fifties. He could not interest in an actor because Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman had started to produce their series. Dr. No came out in 62, Thunderball, uh, excuse me, From Russia With Love came out in 63. And of course, Goldfinger came out in 64. So um, there's no way an actor was going to compete with Sean Connery. Uh, so, uh, McClory went to Broccoli and Saltzman and that's how Thunderball became an official James Bond film, albeit as, th as a movie produced by Kevin McClory. Yeah, that's, that is, and of course, I can't imagine anybody else but Sir Sean, uh, playing that role. <laughs> I can't think well, of it. Well, the other thing that's interesting, uh, Thunderball was not the only Bond novel not owned by Broccoli and Saltzman. They also mm -hmm. did not have rights to Casino Royale. That had been sold uh, first to an actor producer uh, named Gregory Ratoff, who had a deal at Fox. And I think I've talked about this in the press before, but according to uh, Lorenzo Semple Jr., who co-wrote uh, Uncredited Never Say Never Again, he told me when he was over at Fox in the mid-50s that um, Ratoff came to the studio and they were developing the movie 
for Susan Hayward to play a Jane Bond, a female secret agent, which of course today seems kind of ridiculous, but back in the mid fifties, Susan Hayward was fairly hot. And uh, so ironically, James Bond could have started out as a woman, uh, mm. but didn't. Uh, and then, interesting. Yeah. And then uh, McClure, uh, Ratoff eventually sold the rights to a top agent in Hollywood named Charles K. Feldman, who was presented with the same problem that McClory was. This is about 1966. And he couldn't interest any actor in playing James Bond by then because the first five James Bond movies had come out or first four James Bond movies that come out. So he decided to do a spoof. And that's how we got the 60s uh, Casino Royale with Woody Allen and Peter Sellers and Orson Welles. And uh, yeah. that's so that, that it's very hard to compete with success. And indeed, um, uh, the Broccoli and Saltzman system, a, a, a series of Bond films had been hugely successful. Yeah, that's... A lot of history, for sure, with the Bahamas. And as I mentioned, with the Thunderball was the first film that was exclusively, well, not, ex well, yeah. It was, they had five locations as far as I could remember, uh, but the Bahamas was very highly and prominently centered. And then there was uh, You Only Live Twice, 1967, The Spy Who Loved Me, 1977, for Your Eyes Only, 1981, Never Say Never Again, 83, The World Is Not Enough, or The World Is Enough. <laughs> well, the World, the is, world never is Not Enough. enough. You know, it's, it's the world is not I, enough. Think, I think part of the reason the Bahamas was so attractive mm -hmm. to the filmmakers was the crystal clear water. Yeah. Uh, I was told by, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was Ken Adam who designed Thunderball and John Steers, who did all of the special effects that, they filmed off Clifton Pier. Now, I guess Clifton Pier is a prominent location on the island. Yes. And that's where they placed the full-size mock-up of, um, of the bomber that was right. carrying the A-bombs, the Vulcan. Yes. So that was put in the water. That wonderful scene at the beginning of the movie where it sinks to the, the sandy floor and then all the divers are hammering in the net that's going to cover it. The camouflage net was all shot off of Clifton Pier. And I guess, now I don't know the island as well as you do, but I guess yes, yes. in those days back in the 60s, there was a abandoned hotel there that had never been fully operational or maybe it just went out of business. Do you know anything about that? The, well, there is a spot. It's never been developed. And I think the part of Casino Royale, is that the the hotel you're talking about where the, part of that was filmed? Well, 2006 I, with Dan, Daniel Craig? Uh, that I'm not sure of, but okay. um, I know that what, um, what was this prominent feature of the hotel uh, was a tower. And they could, uh, the filmmakers could take a camera up to the top of that tower and film some great sequences. The most, um, the most memorable was shot for The Spy Who Loved Me back mm -hmm. in 76, 77, where you see the super tanker, the Laparis, swallowing up uh, one of the nuclear submarines. And it's shot from above at that eye level. And I thought that Derek Metting's miniature work was just spot on mm -hmm. in that... Um, in that sequence, it looks like a real super tanker is swallowing a real nuclear sub. And it's, again, that crystal clear water, the sun glinting off the waves. 
and just it's just one of the most beautiful shots in the series. And uh, I think you know I'm not sure if they shot uh, aerial shots of Thunderball off that off, off that tower, but of course Thunderball, those aerial shots showing uh, Largo's underwater army of frogmen as photographed from above, probably a helicopter shot. The water mm -hmm. is so crystal clear, you can see yes. every aspect of that army, which I think was just another beautiful aspect of Thunderball. Yes, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the films were shot there, because of the, the, the cinematic backdrop, uh, the, you know, the, the crystal clear waters. I think the weather has a lot to do with it as well. Um, the shallow waters too, they weren't very deep, especially where they they were swimming out there, the, the landscapes and whatnot, like you said, the turquoise water, natural, tropical beauty, et cetera, et cetera. But I know that some Bond films were also uh, filmed in uh, Jamaica, Jamaica and Cuba and some other places. But yes, they the there was the Coral Harbor. I was trying to find, based on the screenplay, And we're back. Sorry about that. My we've inherited my my late mother-in-law's uh, Maltese Kimmy, and Kimmy can be a little bit uh, no, lonely. So she starts barking. I didn't want to disrupt your recording. So no, that I'm that back. is fine. Life happens, right? And it makes it much more fun. <laughs> so that's fine. Uh, where were we? We were talking about uh, well, the backdrop of the Bahamas, of course. Absolutely, and of course, one, you cannot talk about Thunderball or the Bahamas or Nassau without talking about the Jun Canoe. And yes. uh, although I wasn't there for the filming in 1965, uh, I went with my family about 10 years ago mm -hmm. uh, to Nassau. We we stayed at that wonderful Atlantis Resort, and then of course that was. Uh, during Boxing Day. And of course, I got to see the Jun Canoe, which for those of the listeners who don't know what that is, it's this amazing parade uh, on, on Nassau, downtown Nassau, which just is endless and so much fun. I have a funny story to tell about, uh, sure, you know, sure. about the, when they made Thunderball. Uh, I got to know Richard Jenkins very well. Richard Jenkins was a second assistant director mm -hmm. on uh, Thunderball. And he told me that... Um, you know, they filmed throughout the night making the Jun Canoe Parade. Um, and <laughs> Terrence Young got a huge headache from the whistle, whistle, boom, boom, whistle, whistle, boom, boom, <laughs> parade. And he finally told his assistant directors, you got to stop it for a while. I'm dying here. So uh, it's, it sounds pretty funny. Uh, but, um, you know, the parade was just beautiful. And, of course, that's a, the part of the movie where James Bond is escaping from the clutches of the marvelously deadly Fiona Volpe, played by Luciana Peluzzi, who's just marvelous in that role as a specter assassin. Yeah, the Junkanoo, <laughs> I'll be honest, has come a long way in terms of like the detailed artistry involved in creating the costumes and floats and whatnot since, since Bond, the Bond of uh, Thunderball. Uh, there's a lot, I don't, uh, like you said, you were there 10 years ago? Um, yeah, it continues to evolve, and it's a beautiful, massive parade now, with floats that I, I, I it's just an awesome, awesome experience for anyone wanting to check out the Junkanoo Parade. They are available, and I'll have that information 
in the show notes. Well, the, the logistics of filming it at night probably were enormous. And filming at night is always challenging because of lighting and everything. And I thought that Terrence Young is my favorite James Bond director. He did Dr. No from Russia with Love and Thunderball. And he he just just seemed to get what James Bond was all about. And uh, the, the just there's just something that he brought to the character and the action. Terrence Young's an interesting guy because when he he kind of served an apprenticeship in Hollywood for a while, and he kind of considered John Ford a mentor. And if you're a John Ford fan from all those marvelous Westerns shot in Monument Valley, you can see that he just knew really how to fill the frame with interesting things and, and kept his camera moving. And Terrence Young, in a way, was rather a dashing British gentleman who uh, had served in the tank corps in World War II. He was a little bit of a prototype James Bond himself, obviously a film director, but I think he gave to Sean Connery who was rather, you know, kind of, he was kind of fresh off the boat. I mean, Dr. No was not his first film at all, right. but in terms of playing a sophisticated British agent who liked the fine wines and et cetera, uh, Terrence Young kind of gave him uh, a lot of that uh, know-how. Yeah, it was uh, something to behold. I And also it was lovely to see some actual local talent in the films uh, there weren't many speaking parts but they were in the background i do remember king arison uh in thunderball and there were i think there was roy bow in uh never say never he was one of the captains but there wasn't i was just trying to to find out if there was was some more like you know local talent there involved more just a little more heavily um PT, but pt yes. have you ever have you ever found kevin mcclory's cameo uh, no. Okay, so here it is. Mm -hmm. uh, when James Bond, it's the night shot, he's entering the casino. He gets off the boat and he's walking into the casino mm -hmm. and he walks from the outside and the inside. If you're watching Thunderball, mm -hmm. watch uh, as he walks inside the casino and there's a gentleman smoking a cigar sitting in a chair in the foreground. That mm -hmm. is Kevin McClory. I'll have to take a look <laughs> because some things it's because, you know, it's there. Now I can, can look for it. Right. I, so you, yeah. You mentioned King Erickson. He's the guy, he's the band leader. They're playing when Fiona gets shot. Right. Yes. Yes. Playing the congos. The club kiss kiss. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was, um, there were a lot of bohemian talent around, even for like Casino Royale, they had like a call up uh, a call for talent to come extras and whatnot. And so it was great for them to always have uh, local <laughs> Bahamians involved in, in the filming process. <laughs> it was great. My, my, uh, yeah. my dog is starting to bark again. Kim, Kimmy, no. no. Okay. <laughs> we're, getting, no but... we're getting a little slice of Steve Rubin's life. Uh, the, <laughs> by the way, the, the, young, the young, very young actress Mm -hmm. who Bond uh, dances with before Fiona cuts in for that dance sequence. Uh -huh. she, I didn't realize this until I was told that she's also one of the gamblers playing poker with Daniel Craig in the great Casino Royale set piece. Uh, oh. That actress had a comeback there. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. 
that is very interesting. Um, I was looking at the Never Say Never again. I do believe that some of the there were a few shots of Kevin's house <laughs> with uh, Sir Sean and Kim Basinger. Um, oh, and see, I didn't yeah. even know that. Yep. Mm hmm. And uh, there were a couple of shots. It's, and then he winks at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, cause, you know, he's, he's, he's smoothie and smooth. They call it smooth, spoon worthy. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was in Never Say Never. But uh, yeah, there was a, there were a lot of places that used to exist, but hurricanes and just building and everything, they're no longer there. Um, an interesting uh I think there was a, a, a YouTube channel that uh, has like Bond locations and there was a whole book on filming, filming Bond in the Bahamas. And I thought it was very interesting as well. I didn't read it, but they ha it had a lot of locations as to all of the specifics. If, if anyone's interested, I'll have that information in the show notes, but I won't keep you too long, Steve. So in closing, where can our wonderful listeners find you on the internet? Oh, I'm all over the place. I have, as you mentioned, I have two podcasts. One is called Stephen J. Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. I interview filmmakers from both sides of the camera. Um, that's available on all the known podcasts platforms. Then I have a second podcast now, Tales from Hollywoodland, which I do with Arthur E. Friedman and Julian Schlossberg, two terrific producers. Uh, that's also available on all the sites. Um, if anybody wants to reach out to me, I have uh, a strong Facebook presence. Uh, the, the podcast, Stephen J. Rubin, Saturday Night, the movies has presence as a, as a, a uh, Facebook presence. And then uh, I have, um, I'm on LinkedIn, Stephen J. Rubin, J-A-Y. And uh, love to hear from the fans because I've been following Bond now for over over fifty years wow. as a journalist, as a film, as a film historian, and and I'm now a film producer myself. I've produced five films. I uh, did a film uh, for Showtime that was my debut in two thousand two. It's a baseball comedy called Bleacher Bums, and then I followed that with a World War II drama for the Hallmark Channel called Silent Night. And then with David Lee Miller, a good friend, uh, we produced a teen dramedy called My Suicide, currently on Netflix, wow. which has been a terrific boon to fighting suicide all over the planet, especially amongst teenagers. It won the Berlin Prize, the Crystal Bear in 2009, and uh, has been a terrific success for Netflix. It's called My Suicide. It was one of David Carradine's last movies. Mariel Hemingway's in it, Nora Dunn, and a marvelous actor named Gabriel Sunday. Uh, we're very proud of that movie. And then now I'm writing comedy. Oh, great. I'm, I'm hoping to get some comedies made because it's one genre that doesn't seem to get a lot of attention these days, at least for movie theaters. And it should. We could use the levity, can't we? <laughs> we definitely can. I'll be remiss if I didn't mention your James Bond encyclopedia. Yes, uh, we uh, the fourth edition came out uh, just uh, after the release of um, of No Time to Die, and I'm very proud of it. It's my first uh, edition featuring color photos. I've uh, I have over 400 photos in the book. It's available on Amazon, uh, the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia Fourth Edition. 
Um, yeah, that's that that was fun. I had not done any of the Daniel Craig movies, so I really went back and we kind of re rebooted uh, the whole book with new entries all across the board, got rid of super trivia and really focused on the performers. And I, I'm very pleased the how that turned out. That's awesome. Congratulations on all of your success. I can't wait to get my own personal copy. And so I'm, <laughs> it's an order right now as I speak. I wanted it before, but it didn't work out that way. Uh, so we just have to wait it out. And Steve, what is the last great film you've seen? Really, that's an interesting question. Um, well, one of the Oscar movies this year that's being touted for Academy Awards, I really thought two movies stood out for me. One is called The Holdovers with Paul Giamatti. Uh, it's a delightful film, almost a 70s film about a, uh, a very cantankerous prep school professor who's forced to stay behind over the Christmas holidays because four students can't go home for various reasons. So he's forced to babysit them. And then the other movie that's getting a lot of attention right now, and I predict will win Best Picture this year, is Emma Stone's Poor Things, which is one of the more outrageous films of the year, but brilliantly put together. Yeah, she's on her way for sure. She won the Golden Globe. And yes. well, SAG's coming up next. So I uh, will see what happens there and then BAFTA. But she's and, and, and another, if not, we're talking about great movies. Another mm -hmm. film that's really delightful as well is Jeffrey Wright, mm -hmm. who we know as Felix Leiter in the Daniel Craig series. Yes. He's in a movie called American Fiction, which is just a fun project, laugh out loud, funny at times. I really enjoyed that as well. Oh, wow. So you have, so you have a few on your list. <laughs> yes. Of yes, great absolutely. films. Uh, I saw uh, The Society of the Snow. Um, that was a foreign film from Uruguay, I believe. And that was great. Uh, a little panic inducing, but it was a very good film. And it's oh, available on Netflix if anyone is interested in seeing it. So, yeah. So, Steve, it was an absolute joy sharing the space with you today. <laughs> I'm sure fans of the franchise will enjoy the knowledge you so graciously shared with us today. And uh, I would love to perhaps speak with you again in the future, maybe bond and art. Uh, I've, I've, I've looked high and low for, for art, you know, the art that's displayed in the set decorations. And I can't really, I'm not sure where, where to, where to look to find, um, the well, you know, there, there, mm -hmm. there are some marvelous books that are official books of Eon. Mm -hmm. They, uh, I, I, if you go on the internet and type in set design, James Bond mm -hmm. production design, I think there are books that have all of the James Bond art in full display. In fact, that somebody just sent, sent me a note today that mm -hmm. Tashin, the big art book uh, publisher, has the Dr. No book coming out which involved years of research where every aspect of the art of Dr. No is going to be in one of these beautiful Toshin coffee books. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I know for a fact, there is a book out there uh, featuring all the art of Bond. Okay. The art in the set decorations, because when I would search, I found like art, like um, Robert, Robert, I think his name is Robert McGinnis, his art and, and, and I guess renditions as opposed to the art that's found the abstract pieces. Oh yeah. I think he's known for the posters as he's well. He's a poster art as well and illustrations. Yeah. 
all of that is available. Believe me, I, you know, when I first started writing about Bond, there was really nobody writing about Bond. Now everybody's writing about Bond. <laughs> and there's probably must be 50 different books out on James Bond. You know, okay. it's, uh, I'm, in, I'm in very good company. Okay, wonderful. So I'm I'm going to definitely do a deep dive on the art of Bond because there were a few pieces. I know this is a little off topic and we're supposed to, to close, but um, yeah, the the abstract piece, there was an abstract piece in Thunderball. It's black and white. And I, I couldn't stop looking at it and zooming in and trying to figure out who the artist was. And so I'm really curious to know who that is. And I will, I will find out. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. And uh so all the very best in everything that you do. And it was Thank you, Pete. An absolute I appreciate that. honor. It was an absolute honor to have you here today. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm honored that you invited me and uh, we, I look forward to our next conversation. Yes, sir. All the best, Steve. Okay, take care. Saturday night at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> you were listening to Journaling with PT and a conversation about James Bond in the Bahamas with Mr. Steve J. Rubin. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please visit his information in the show notes. Subscribe to the podcast. Share all the things. The beautiful music, the theme music, the new theme music for the Journal with PT podcast is by musician, artist, composer, Mr. Zendo Domenico. The piece is called Preludio. Thank you again.